Hello and welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to join us for today's discussion. And it's going to be a really great discussion. Uh, although it, it's been a matter of great suspense for me, uh, we've been trying to follow this week's lesson. And the lesson this week is uh, on developing a winning attitude. And in the app that I use for uh, reading the lesson, for some reason the title is not rendered correctly and all it said is developing a winning. And I've been wondering what it is, this winning thing that we're meant to be developing. And uh, reading through the, the, the lesson um, days that followed didn't exactly clear things up completely. But I've discovered that it's a winning attitude. And at first I thought that sounded very self-helpy developing a winning attitude so that you can succeed in real estate or something. But Lachlan assures me that it's not that sort of winning. Um, that's not the sort of attitude we're trying to develop. So um, we'll, we'll jump into our discussion. Ken can't be here with us. He normally contributes to our discussion. Uh, my name's Cameron. I'm definitely here and looking forward to what's in ahead of us. I'm Luke, I'm calling in from Sydney, and very happy to be here also. And I'm Lachlan, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I assume you could hear that laughing in the background. Yeah, that's. A, I think laughter. We can we can cope with laughter, Luke. <laughs> it's been three hours. It has not been three hours. <laughs> it's been two weeks though, hasn't it, Luke? When do you get out? Uh, tomorrow morning, uh, first thing. Oh, good. Right. So, Locke, you, you were telling me earlier that you don't think a winning attitude means the sort of self-belief required to just by sheer positivity win the lottery. I don't believe that's what the lesson is admonishing us to develop. Ah, I see. It, in the context of witnessing, presumably the, a winning attitude means an attitude that helps us win people to Christ. Yeah, I believe that's true. And the the lesson does sort of confirm that by pointing out its continuity uh, with last week's topic on on the ministry of Jesus. And it's 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 inviting us to look a little deeper at the way that Jesus interacted with people. And I guess the, the idea of doing that is because there's quite a lot for us potentially to learn from the ministry of Jesus. And Christ, of course, talked to a whole bunch of people uh, from people who were needy and very aware of their needs to people who, who thought they had no needs at all. And uh, two of the days in this week's lesson sort of jumped out at me, partly because the titles seemed to me to overlap quite a lot. One was called Truth Lovingly Presented, and then two days later, oh, sorry, two days earlier than that was uh, Presenting the Truth in Love. And I'd like to jump in on this theme, this idea of presenting the truth in love. We're going to talk about uh, an event that in Christ's ministry that's re recorded in uh, several Gospels, um, a time when Christ had to develop, sorry, a time when Christ had to deliver difficult truths. And it's very much the case that if someone came to you and said, if someone came to me and said, Cameron, can I tell you something in love? I would be bracing myself to hear something unpleasant. I, I mean, I think that that is the language we use in the church, um, our church, uh, when we want to tell someone uh, something perhaps uncomplimentary. Uh, something critical. It's the religious equivalent of someone c 
coming and saying no offense but yes yeah exactly. um, and i do think it it can be misused in the same way as no offense but which is to say uh, i very much intend to offend you <laughs> but i don't want to sound like i'm go- i intend to offend you so i'm going to pretend that it's it's not my intention yeah. you can use it in a nasty way i'm not saying everybody who says it that way does but uh, th- there can be that element and i think it it may it may have some connection to. Uh, it is natural, um, particularly within a church, to want to be nice to everybody, and if you can't be nice to everybody, or, uh, appear nice to everybody, and and I think when that desire gets ahead of your genuine concern for the well-being of somebody else, the the motivation can get a bit mixed up, and it comes through in the language. The lesson pulls out. I think a fairly nuanced position on one day where it talks about the foundation of acceptance. I'm quoting from the lesson. It says, uh, what should our attitude be toward others? Here's a difficult concept for some to understand. Genuine acceptance means that we accept people as they are with all their sinful habits because they are human beings created in the image of God. Because Christ died for us while we were yet sinners and reconciled us to God when we were his enemies, we can forgive and accept others. That's an interesting it's an interesting phrase, and I'd like to think about those ideas and uh, use that as a lens uh, as we read this story from John chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading from verse 12, and we're going to go through to, uh, what, about verse 22. After this, Christ went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Christ went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, oh dear me, and drove all from the temple. Do you know, I've never noticed the whip out Mm -hmm. of cords. I know I'm meant to be reading this passage, but uh, I I know he overturned tables, which seemed to me violent enough. But he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple area, all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the... Oh, the whip was just for the sheep, sheep and cattle. Well... Uh, oh, it doesn't say that. It does not. I'm not sure if I'd like him to come to my church. Um, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get those out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Since we're meta-commentating in the middle of reading the passages, Cam, I had completely forgotten that this bit about destroying and rebuilding the temple in three days was in here as well. That's right, because it's it's quoted in in his trial, isn't it, before Uh, Pilate? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Uh, Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay. So there's a lot of questions. Uh, My first question is, did Christ have a winning attitude? (laughs) I'm I'm increasingly uncomfortable with this phrase. I'm not sure what it's getting. But winning attitude, whatever it's meant by the lesson, did Christ have it? Well, I mean, equally valid question is, was he, the truth that he spoke here, was he speaking it in love? I tend to think yes. He was definitely presenting the truth in love. 
was well, I with the whip. <laughs> I think that we need to explore this a little bit. But I'm very the reason I want to say yes is because I'm very reluctant. I'm very reluctant to make any claim that Jesus was interacting with people without love because it does seem to be really, really central to to him and who he is. The passage suggests, Locke, that that he was almost on out of control because the disciples remember what the prophet says. You know, zeal for your house consumes me. Yes, yes. It's not surprising that, that we paused and made some real-time commentary as we read through it. This is not where we normally read this story. Um, I, I, I imagine certainly a little bit of a surprise to me, and I imagine also for a lot of you listening, this is John chapter 2. It's almost the beginning of the account of Jesus and his ministry in this gospel. The only real event that has happened before this is Jesus turning the water into wine, which is famously Jesus's first miracle. So in the gospel of John... What a start. Do you think, do you think like, if I, if I went to a wedding and turned it into an absolute raging party success and then went to my local church and threw all the furniture out the window that I could be ordained? I have a feeling that there would be certain people wanting to talk to you sternly in love. Ah, yeah, I see. So what has to be pointed out, I, I, I suspect that we need to admit, John is different from a lot of the other Gospels. John is mm. um, a book that approaches the story of Jesus from a, a slightly more poetic point of view. And in... It's interesting, this story or some version of it is in all four Gospels, uh, which is not true of every mm. event recorded of the life of Jesus. And in Matthew, Mark and Luke, this comes at the triumphal entry, basically at the start of the Passion Week leading into the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's coming right at the end of Jesus's ministry. Now, there's probably a lot of reasons why that actually makes a lot more sense for the real historical placement in sequence of this event. But that doesn't take away from the fact that John has decided to place it in chapter 2, right here at the start, as an introductory sort of defining moment for Jesus. And, and I think that that forces us to really grapple with this story. We cannot just discard it, discount it. We cannot just move it aside to the end of the ministry, even if that's when it happened historically, because the book of John is drawing it to our attention much more prominently. It does really seem that this is a pivotal thing that John wants us to see Christ's character. I mean, Christ starts with the description of Christ, which is which is highly poetical, and we've talked about it in pre previous episodes. Not historical in the sense it's not, it's not recording a history. Um, it's telling us what Christ means, not where he was born and what order things happened in. Mm. So there does seem to be a case for saying that John saw this story as, as a really pivotal one for pinning down what Christ meant. And it certainly places Christ as the disruptor. I had a conversation this week with a teacher at Grammar, who I've talked about before. He teaches philosophy at Grammar and really nice. And he was commenting on the fact that there have been so many atrocities committed in the name of Christians. Mm particularly Christians defending particular interpretations of the Bible. And wasn't it a bit irresponsible for God not to make the Bible a little clearer? This guy's not a Christian. <laughs> Wouldn't have guessed. No, but uh, he, he, made, he made a very good point. And I said to him that I, I thought that by and large the Bible would agree with his point in that the Bible very much recognises the fact that organised religion has a tendency to go wrong in spectacularly wrong ways. And the, the tendency for that to happen 
emerges in any system, religious or secular, but it basically comes down to deficiencies in our character about who we are. And and this idea of Christ, of a pitching Christ, that God come on earth, and you know the first miracle he does is at a wedding, give, helping everyone ease the social tension, giving people a lovely day to remember on their wedding day without embarrassment. And then the next story is he's disrupting the religious institutions. Uh, for a secular world that is very distrustful of religion, you know, they treat it as if it's a new idea sometimes, but it's not a new idea, is it? Uh, religion at its best has always been very self-critical. Well, I, I think I've mentioned it on previous episodes that the contrast between the priesthood and the prophets and it's almost, for, for a lot of the Old Testament, not almost, it is, the prophets are there just to be outside of the system and to point out, you know, with the freedom that that allows, problems with the priesthood. And they, they annoy the priesthood in all sorts of different ways. Um, this is something... Do they do it in love, Luke? Do they do it in love? Well, uh, I don't know about all the prophets uh, doing it in love. Some of them seem like pretty cranky people. Uh, but I'm with Lachlan in that I find it troubling to consider Jesus ever doing anything that was not in love, which does not help to resolve the questions of this passage. I like that you've made that comment about the prophets, Luke, because this story is one of the, the, the stories, to my mind, that most prominently reminds us. You know, we sing about Jesus being prophet and priest and king, and I've commented, I think, in an earlier episode last season, that the king bit makes a lot of sense, easy to understand. The priest bit, especially in the light of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, yeah, easy to understand. Jesus as prophet, I think, is the one aspect of his ministry and his character that we least frequently grapple with in a, in a real sense. And our challenge with this passage in this episode is essentially grappling with that, that prophet element of Jesus and his ministry. The, the prophets act unpredictably. They tend to act a little bit outrageously. They, they, what I mean by that is they, they cause outrage. They attract attention. They do things that are unusual and, you know, in lots of cases, confronting. They're denounced from the pulpit. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is Jesus following a, a strong tradition of Old Testament prophets in, in his, in the, the, dramatic, public, visual, tangible story that he's trying to tell here, message that he's trying to tell. And and another interesting detail, I, I just have to come back to this. This story is not only in a different place in the book of John, but I went and checked. The whip of cords that Jesus made is only mentioned here in John. It's not featured in Matthew, Mark or Luke. Right. That must have been why I was surprised. The thing is, that's so much premeditation, isn't it? It wasn't even that he picked up a, a whip that was lying nearby. He, he sat and made a whip out of cords. Yes. And then laid in, drove everyone out of the, the temple. Um, can I read the passage from the lesson again? I don't think the passage in the lesson is wrong. I think that there's, there's truth in it. But it's, it's just a really fascinating contrast with the passage we've just read. Um, so let me read it again. What then should your attitude be towards others? Here's a difficult concept for some to understand. Genuine acceptance means that we accept people as they are with all their sinful habits because they are human beings created in the image of God. Because Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, 
and reconciled us to God when we were his enemies, we can forgive and accept others. His love towards us becomes the very foundation of our acceptance and the forgiveness towards others. But once an accepting, caring relationship has been established, it is often necessary to confront another individual lovingly with the truths of Scripture. To fail to do this is to neglect to love. We must care enough to share life-changing eternal truths with our friends. Well, Jesus comes in pretty quickly with the truths of Scripture in this story. In the book of John, which we read, he does not quote. Mm. But in Matthew, uh, he says to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Yeah, well, that is the, the statement of his that we all remember from the story, which means most of the time we're not reading it from John. Mm. It's maybe to our detriment, because the version in John is very interesting. The whip of cords is a great detail. So, but once and so Christ didn't really pause to to build an accepting, caring relationship with people in the temple. That's one thing that's obvious. This other phrase, though, it's often necessary after after we've accepted them and loved them, then um, that's all well and good. But then you know it may be it is often necessary to confront another individual lovingly. So the fact that we're confronting them suggests that it's unpleasant. The fact that we have to do it lovingly, again, suggests that the fact that we have to try to do it lovingly suggests that they're not going to like it. What what do we have to do to these people uh, that's confrontational, that we have to concentrate so hard to do lovingly? We, we have to share with them the truths of Scripture. Are the truths of Scripture so unpalatable? Um, as well as that? Well, I mean, in this story, they were, weren't they? The, the people in the temple didn't think much of Christ. Well... So there's something interesting here, and this is, again, just picking up on, on one of these quirks in the way John tells the story. We stopped at verse 22, but in verse 23, an interesting detail comes. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, that's when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So something about what Jesus did in Jerusalem. And the only thing, the only detail we're given in verse 13, where we started, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Then he does the whip of cords and the driving out of the temple. And then many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, obviously, seeing the signs that Jesus was doing is another one of those great poetic and literary themes of the book of John. But it, I think, it's actually telling us something interesting here. It is indicating to me that there were a great number of people who were displeased themselves with what was happening in the temple. If I can hypothesize for a little bit, imagine that the people trading were exploiting the poor and vulnerable who are required by their religious community to make certain offerings around the time of Passover. Mm. You know, is it possible that what Jesus was doing was speaking in a way that was as confronting as it is, that 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 sort of event that's, that we're struggling with, but he was doing it because of a love for the multitude of people who were being actively exploited, downtrodden, diminished, uh, neglected by these people. Jesus Jesus is is not really at the liberty to sit and befriend and move through those steps that the lesson has, has suggested in this case, because he feels an urgency growing from his deep and powerful love 
for the crowds. I like that lock. I like it a lot. Um, there's an extra nuance, though, if we go just one step, one verse further. So you drew our attention to verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Verse 24, but Christ would not entrust himself to them, for he knew them. <laughs> he didn't need man's testimony about men, for he knew what was in a man. So Christ, Christ was suspicious of the people who liked what he was doing. Yeah. It's, um, well, is that, that verse 24 and 25, is that part of the story in any of the other Gospels? Because that makes sense if this is near the beginning of his ministry. It makes much less sense if this is where it's put chronologically in the other three books. Mm, in what way, Luke? Because he was positioning himself to get betrayed anyway. Matthew and Mark have Jesus cursing the fig tree straight after this temple cleansing. Well, that's thematically right. connected. Yeah. So it's none of the other Gospels really feature this, this particular idea. But of course they do without saying it. Because by placing this event in the, in the Passion Week, you have that remarkably fickle transition of the crowd which one day is laying down their coats for his donkey to carry him over and waving palm branches. And barely a couple of days later on, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Even then, Locke, though, it's not, it's not clear necessarily how much of the crowd was present in the... I mean, the crucifixion scene was very much driven by the religious leaders. Yes, well, indeed. Uh, it's such a baffling and rapid transition that many, many interpreters have assumed that there were two different crowds. Uh, the, one, the one group of people who are, who are singing Hosanna and waving the palm branches is different from the crowd that, that, you know, wants to crucify him and free Barabbas. In the Hosanna crowd, of course, the religious leaders are there complaining, telling people to be quiet and Christ has to say to them well look you know the rocks will start singing soon <laughs> so it could be and and I'm not sure how much of the rabble would have been allowed into pilots well courtyard. um oh th that would be speculation on my part but probably quite a lot from what I know of the Roman justice system right you would want the public there to to uh, it's a form of entertainment but you're also a display of authority um, and a reminder of the hierarchy. And, you know, you want justice to be seen to be done. But I'm speculating. I'm not an expert on Roman legal tradition. I mean, in John's Gospel, what follows next is not the crucifixion. What follows is the teaching of Nicodemus. Yes, which is a bit of a whiplash transition in terms of behavior and character. Yeah. Because... Like you said, Cam, this is a rollicking start to Jesus' ministries and paints his character as someone who's, if if not downright Im impulsive and wild, um, is certainly passionate. Mm. And then the teaching of Nicodemus is reason and contemplation and deep discussion and and mysteries of theology. And it, it's, it's very different. And it's a very different side of Jesus. It's quite different. And the, the fact that John has it next, it is perhaps inferred by the placement of these stories that there were members of the Pharisees who, who were pleased to see the temple cleared out. I know that there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of friction recorded in the book of Acts between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's that great passage where Paul's on trial 
and they're accusing him. And he looks out and he happens to notice that half of his accusers are, are Pharisees who do believe in a resurrection and half of them were Sadducees who don't. And he stands up and he says, I am on trial here today because I am a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection. And immediately the Pharisees in the room stand up and say, there's nothing wrong with this man, he's fine. And the Sadducees say, no, he's a heretic. <laughs> and um, there's, there's no consensus. I mean, what a brilliant strategic move. It's quite likely, I mean, the Sadducees were more secular than the Pharisees. Mm. Uh, it's quite likely that there were many Pharisees who were upset to see the temple being abused. And that placing these stories adjacent to each other infers that, you know, people like Nicodemus came to Christ because of this. But this really raises a, a core question. When it says we have to deal with people in love, we have to build a relationship with them. I know it's not it, it's not possible in times of conflict or strife to simultaneously build relationships with all people. And I know, and I'm clutching at straws, this is a vague memory of something that I heard about early Adventists in Burma who had made great inroads with a particular uh, racial group within the country and converted many of them. And because of that, other racial groups opposed to this racial group would not accept the message because it had become associated with one group of people. Even if the story is apocryphal, you could imagine something like that happening uh, in a fractured society where people are not getting on, where there's tensions and there's strife and there's money makers in the temple trying to make money and there's the Sadducees vying for political influence and there's the Pharisees who are the real religious purists trying to call everyone to account. And in a situation like this, how could a public figure like Christ build any sort of relationship universally without appearing to take sides? I mean, that's more or less what happens in this temple story, isn't it? That Christ is not on the side of the people changing money. And then at the end of the story, Christ is recorded as not being on the side of the people who liked him driving everyone out. Yeah. But the one that was the somewhat violent confrontation or more visible confrontation was was with the people for whom the status quo was successful. If you like, they were winning. And seems part of Jesus's winning attitude is his focus consistently on the people who are excluded, who are losing. And I wonder if there's something that in there, uh, something in that for us. As you say, Cam, I think we might often be confronted with the challenge of you cannot simultaneously speak in love to all people because of circumstances and situations over which you have no control. It seems that the message of Jesus is, go out of your way to side with the vulnerable, disadvantaged and exploited. Mm. Is that something within the Adventist church that's well received? Well. So I'm trying to think of an example. Even really subtle things that we do as Adventists that we're well and truly entrenched in colonial attitudes. Mm. And I know I was talking with one of my friends, Braden, who works in Albury. And he was appalled, this was a couple of years ago, because a children's Sabbath school lesson had come out. And there was a story in the lesson about children squabbling in the playground or something. And the, the, in the illustrations, the hero of the tale was white and the, and the people who were the perpetrators of wrongdoing were black. Mm, these myths we tell ourselves. And he worked for a long time in the Solomon Islands. He said people in the islands pick up on these things, on this messaging. Mm. Subtle accidental almost certainly not it wasn't a conscious decision racism 
uh, we, the Western world, having all the good and wonderful, and we'll share it with the developing world. That that, that sort of attitude is is in the Adventist Church as well, a- and we do celebrate people who are successes, um, in the Adventist Church, uh, great evangelists or funny and um, inspiring speakers. Do we go out of our way to sort of hunt for the people who are being marginalised? Well, as as somebody who works for Adra, some of us do. Ah, that's a good answer, Luke. I hadn't hadn't thought of Adra, but well, a, a lot of us don't. <laughs> um, it's the other side of that. Uh, but uh, I mean, I think without trying to be casting a blanket judgment on anyone, I think in Australia we do better on this than than many places. That's certainly not to say that we couldn't do it better. Uh, by a long shot. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you recognise that it is our duty at times to share the truth in love with other people, which I agree, if you also hold that the church as a body, the global church and, and God's family as a whole, and humanity as a whole, is a body where we each have need of each other, and if you also hold that there can't be any one person without fault, then it must be equally true maybe even on an equal frequency, that we need to listen to the truth with love. Mm. In other words, we, we should read the story in John and identify ourselves as being just as likely, we are just as likely as anyone else to end up as the money changers in this story as, as the children who came and sat on his knee afterwards or the people who were pleased with what happened. We, we invariably do read ourselves into the hero of these tales into the heroes we 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 want to be on see ourselves as being on the right side <laughs> so i'm thinking of a of a word shift that we might need to consider i'm not actually sure whether the phrase sharing the truth in love is directly from the bible and it may well be there are a couple of passages that come to mind that are similar but there's a verb that's much more prominent in the ministry of jesus which is to seek and maybe what we need to be trying to focus on is, is the verb seeking the truth in love. Maybe rather than sitting down with someone because we think that we have the truth they need to hear, we need to be more active in sitting down with someone so that together, in loving community, we can join in a search for truth that we both need to gain and benefit from. I like that lot. I like the, uh, I mean, it draws into some themes we've pulled out from previous episodes and other stories we, we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. There was the Peter and Cornelius story we, we looked at a few weeks ago where Peter learns an enormous amount in that experience with Cornelius. It, it really a dramatic change of his worldview. I think of Saul in Damascus and what's the name of the guy who's told to pray for him? Is it Ananias? Ananias? And and God says to him, hey, you need to go and pray for Saul. And I think it's Ananias. Ananias says, for Saul? You know, what good is there in Saul? Mm. One could imagine that God could have healed Saul without someone going to lay hands on him. But God wanted it known within the church that Saul was a person with potential for the kingdom, for, for helping seek and establish his kingdom. And all through Acts, there's, there's constant... It's a constant theme that people were having to readjust their expectations as they were sharing the word. 
So this idea of seeking, this idea of evangelism being something which we should expect to change us as much as it changes other people, uh, I think it's a really powerful idea. All of this is making me think of a, of a bit of advice that I often give my son, who is nine, and as is typical for that age, has a fairly rigid view of the world. Things are a particular way. And it tends to stress him slightly if a story is being recounted, for example, by his younger sister, and one of the small and perhaps inconsequential details of that story is said wrong. Uh, my son will get, will, will, will correct it. And, and the bit of advice that I have regularly given on a number of occasions is that it's more important to be friendly than to be right. That's the wording that I use. And, and what I mean by that is that when it's, when it's correcting something that, that really on reflection is not so essential, all you're doing is burning your, your, your sort of relationship credibility with that person by, by trying to correct them with the truth. So what I'm hearing is from, from this study that we've just been on, uh, I may be giving him the wrong advice. Because in this story, Jesus does not preference friendliness over truth. He, if anything, preferences truth that needs to be told in the moment over friendliness. Yeah, there's also the element, though, Locke, where Christ knew what was in people's hearts. It says that in the story. Ah, um, we don't. That's a very important point, I think, and it would be very, very bad if we missed it. Maybe we ought not read the Gospels and then try to be like Christ in every sense hmm. or, or pretend to be like Christ. Christ had knowledge of God and of other people which was deeper and more accurate than ours in a fairly fundamental way mm -hmm. um, that the narrative seems to suggest. So maybe it's not endorsing us to adopt that. You've rescued me, Cam. That's why I can say, yes, Jesus was doing this in love, because he could see into their hearts and in his love for them, he knew this is what they needed. Yeah. Well, there are, though. I mean, it doesn't let you off the hook completely, Luck. <laughs> no. Because there are times where you see an injustice and you have to decide, is this... I was going to say, is it a hill I'm willing to die on? Uh, in the context of Christ's ministry, that has a rather poignant... And very different, very different meaning. Yes. Uh, it seems that this was a hill Christ was willing to die on when it came to people exploiting religious services for their personal monetary gain. Mm. Uh, it I, was a hill he was well, willing to die on in a, in a very real sense. Look, I think um, you may be helped out by considering what I think it was you yourself said about the exploitation of the crowds and that um, this was being done by Jesus on their behalf because it is rare to find an act of Jesus anywhere under any circumstances that is not in aid of another. That is something that he's very consistent with and something we talked about last time at length three different miracles with three different levels of faith and three different people in three very different circumstances. In all of them, he is considering not just the physical healing, but but their social status, their relationship with others, their emotional well-being. And he is also considering his path. One of the things I've noticed from the studies of Jesus that we've done over the last few months and I, I want to phrase this carefully because I don't want to give the wrong impression. He is quite strategic in his choice of public actions. He is 
doing things that are calculated because, as you say, he knows people's hearts, that are designed to evoke certain responses which will lead to the outcome that he is moving towards. And he's playing against people. Sorry, I was going to say, Luke, that he's playing against people who are operating on strategic and political principles. Uh, I don't think Christ is playing against them. I think Christ is trying to be genuine. But he's up against people who are playing the game. Well, no. If, you I... know, that f- phrase that turns up often, where it says they were laying a trap for him. That would require Christ to be very strategic. If I may disagree with you. Do it, Luke. Well, I, I don't think I'm really disagreeing with you. But I would say he is he is absolutely playing the game with them, but not for his own benefit. And he's they think he is trying to win the way they would win, which is to say achieve earthly power and and wealth and, and anything else that you might have selfish ambitions about. He is, in fact, moving towards an entirely different goal. So it would be yeah. fair to say that you're right. He he is playing knowing knowing all of their moves and they are playing not knowing any of his. Because you you see this again and again in his interactions with the Pharisees where they're trying as you say they're trying to trap him and he has an answer that they weren't expecting because he's just working towards an entirely different goal that they haven't even considered. Yeah. If I may make a comparison for purely selfish reasons, uh, it reminds me very much of the Lord of the Rings, or I should rather say that the Lord of the Rings reminds me very much of Jesus, because of course it does, and the quest to destroy the ring. The reason that it works is because the Dark Lord, Sauron, would not have conceived in his wildest dreams of someone being so selfless as to sacrifice power. Yeah, exactly. I, that, that analogy came to my mind as well. And and in fact, there's a passage where Gandalf calls him a wise fool. And Sauron is full of power and strategy and scheming, but he, he just can't imagine that someone would take the, the ring of power and destroy it. He imagines that anyone who came across it would want that power for himself because that's what he himself would want. And there's that sense in which the conflict, the ultimate conflict that came to a head in the crucifixion, obviously Christ anticipated it would end that way. He, he thought it would end that way. He, he told his disciples it would have done that way. And it's a real challenge, isn't it? Christ saw that for some of these religious leaders, he, he wouldn't be able to break through to them, which is a real sobering thought. These, these were people who, in their own minds, were fully committed to their religious beliefs and religious causes. Hmm. So if I am fully committed... I might have the same state of mind they did. In other words, this is something of which we're all capable. It's a real sobering thought. I'll, I'll go back to the lesson only because because why not when there's all sorts of juicy contrasts that you could pull out. The lesson says, uh, love seeks the best for the other. There is no conflict between love and truth. And uh, mm. I'm not sure. Mm. Well, At the trivial level, if someone comes to me and says, do I look fat in this? There might be a conflict between love and truth. Mark Twain uh, lamented the decay of lying as an art form, by which he meant the rise of rudeness in society. He said, we we need to get much better at lying. And he wrote some interesting short stories about it, of of people being put in positions where, to be loving, they were forced to lie. Or or even... 
you have the idea of the sort of polite lie where I know it's a lie and you know it's a lie, but you appreciate that I have said it, even even though we both know it's not true, because I'm being considerate of your feelings. Yes. But when we talk about truth, is this really the the subject material of the definition of that term, or are we talking about theology and faith and God? So I think this is an excellent question, and it also it also highlights the sort of the way in which the the anecdote I shared about trying to help a nine year old work out more of the loving side than the truth side. Of course, the events that happen that I that I described there are may be related to truth meaning fact versus not fact. This is what did happen or not happen. But it's a fair those of those sorts of stories are actually a fair way removed from truth meaning the sort of important and eternal truths that Jesus proclaimed that transform our lives for the better so that we can be agents of the kingdom to better reveal God's purpose and God's will on earth. So I agree when you say truth, I think that there's um, there's a lot of room there. In my defense, I think that it's um, quite fair to sacrifice f- truth for friendliness when it's a small detail in recounting an anecdote from what happened at school that day. And it may not be right to make the same priority sequence for a different magnitude of truth. Even then, we, we each of us have different priorities about what we think is important. Mm. We have lines that we draw in, in different places. I'd like to suggest the following truths as truths that we all ought to be telling each other and ourselves in love fairly often. And surely as a community, if we're to succeed as a community, this is apart from evangelism, if we're to succeed just within a church group, one of the truths that has to be foremost in our mind is that none of us is without fault. And I think that keeping that in our minds is something that will preserve us from sacrificing love or friendship or or kindness or or a winning attitude, like a, a friendly attitude. Uh, for the sake of some factual point. I've belonged to churches where people on a semi-regular basis threaten to leave. If that happens, or if this position is adopted, or if that person is appointed, I'll leave. And it seems to me that recognising that none of us is without fault might protect us against some of these tendencies that we have and allow us to read into these stories in the in the gospels ourselves into the position of the sadducees and the pharisees to recognize that that's something we're capable of Hmm. so first truth recognizing that none of us is without fault and the second is that none of us is without need for more truth and i think that that should inform our witnessing that we should we should approach witnessing with an attitude like like you said of, of seeking god's kingdom together and looking at and hunting for where god's active and joining in and expecting to be changed by the process and I, th- I think that if we're not willing to receive the truth in love, uh, it's unrealistic for us to attempt to share it in love. I agree with everything there, Cam. I could be wrong in this, but one of the thoughts that is really uh, in my head as we're closing is if faced with an, a perceived tension between truth and love, I feel like we are better in keeping with the overall picture, the balance of Christ's ministry, 
if we err on the side of love. And I would rather be known as the person who erred on the side of love than the person who was so concerned about erring on the side of truth that it caused me to sacrifice loving interactions with people. I'm, I'm confident in saying that I have faith that there is no conflict whatsoever between truth and love. But I myself would be very cautious of ever assuming that I fully understood either truth or love. Because when you do see a perceived conflict, we must assume, you know, we are looking through a mirror darkly. And we must always have the humility in that case not to leap to conclusions. Well, we'll leave it on that. We're running out of time, as we always do. All of our listeners are welcome to email us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. We enjoy hearing from you. And uh, this is proving to be a really interesting sequence of discussions. We're well past halfway through this quarter. And uh, there's some very interesting topics still to come. So we look forward to you joining us next week.